Next Chapter Podcasts. From Wondery, this is Black History for Real. I'm Francesca Ramsey. And I'm Conscious Lee. What do most <laughs> people think about when they hear the words Black History? Rosa Parks, Reconstruction, MLK, February, Black History Exactly, Mom. exactly. There are so many stories of Black History that we just are not really talking about or thinking about, especially outside of February. And we are about to flip the script on all of that. Because on this show, you're going to hear a little less... In August 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. And a little bit more. She is a heroine to some. As a fighter for black rights, she is a villain to others. Follow Black History for Real on the Wondery app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to every episode of Black History for Real early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Confederate monuments... Well, first off, they're, they're one of the most difficult tasks for historic preservation because, you know, preservation is about keeping what's there. How do we deal with that when something is patently offensive? I worry that we're at an inflection point again where we're starting to see this return to the covering up of stories that are going to diminish the capacity for people to be connected. Southern food may be for, for white people and soul food is made for black people, even though it's the same food. Right. You see that sound of Appalachia, you have the jazz, you got the, the, the gospel, you know, the churches between North and South Carolina, the R&B, you know, every every region has this, has this thing. You know what I'm saying? It's like we got a demo tape and nobody want to hear it, but it's like, this the South got something to say. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Our New South, a podcast series presented by the Levine Museum of New South in Charlotte, North Carolina, with the generous support from the Knight Foundation. Hi, my name is Dr. Robert Green II, coming to you from Clafton University, and I'm joined by my co-host, Kevin Blackestone, coming to you from College Park, Maryland. And we truly thank you for tuning in today. Over the course of this series, we'll be discussing the concept of the New South and how it's evolved with academics, activists, and creatives. We'll investigate the history of the evolution of the South, asking questions of our expert guests, using the lens of topics in key areas like socioeconomic mobility, voting rights, and discriminatory practices that have shaped the South over the decades leading up to today's challenges. We thank you for joining us on this journey and ask that you please tell your friends and family about us. Follow the show, rate and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Okay, let's get to today's episode of the show. Today's episode of Our New South focuses on the preservation of history and culture in the South and how historical landmarks, music, and food have all been significant in the evolution of Southern culture from the Civil War era until today. We will discuss the debates over Confederate monuments and their relevance in today's South, how gentrification and other factors have fueled the destruction of many historic Southern communities and the influence of the former enslaved on the food that we eat and the music that we listen to today. You know, Robert, I, I'm so glad that we're talking about this because I haven't thought about the South this way, but it really has exported so much of American culture in terms of the food that we, we love to eat, whether it's chicken or whether it's black-eyed peas and certainly the music that we listen to, whether it's John Coltrane, 
who came from North Carolina, or I know one of your favorite musical influences, Outkast. Well, you're absolutely right. And I'm glad that we're talking about this because typically when folks think of the South, think of the U.S. South, it's the bad things in American history. It's slavery. It's segregation. It's the expulsion of indigenous peoples. But I think what we're talking about in this episode offers a counter to that, a positive counter. I once showed with a friend of mine that I sometimes wish that folks would find other symbols for the South besides the Confederate flag. I take a bowl of grits any day of the week over the (laughs) stars and bars. And likewise, a few years ago, there was a meme about replacing the Confederate generals on Stone Mountain with outcast. Um, So even Southerners (laughs) are, are very much enraptured with this idea of what the South can mean beyond the bad things and how the South is about food, culture, and so much more. Man, you whet my appetite. Let's do it. The U.S. South's contributions to American and global culture is nothing short of legendary. The combination of indigenous, African, and European cultures in what is now the U.S. South has left a rich melange of art, cuisine, and music that has become the heart of American culture. Yet the South has not developed any of this without, at the same time, reckoning with its own past of enslavement of Africans, forced relocations of indigenous peoples, and the bloody creation and recreation of white identity. The Southern landscape is dotted with reminders of these related histories. In many places across the South, the former plantations and mansions of the white Southern elite have been turned into historic sites. In recent years, however, landmark preservationists have turned their attention to also preserving the homes of historically important Black Southerners. This has expanded the definition of both what is historically relevant and who can be properly defined as a Southerner. The U.S. South has also earned a worldwide reputation for its rich and vibrant music culture. Genres such as the blues, jazz, gospel, and rock and roll all owe something to the region. Again, this cultural mixing of Black, Indigenous, and European cultures has played a major role. Without the South, American popular music as we know it would quite simply not exist. While cities such as New Orleans, Memphis, and Nashville have left their mark on music, in 2024, cities such as Charlotte are also adding their musical talents to the tradition of Southern music. But it is perhaps in food where the South's artistic and cultural heritage is best enjoyed. The incorporation of ingredients from indigenous, African, and European foodstuffs gave rise to Southern cuisine as we know it. Fried chicken, grits, collard greens, Hoppin' John, macaroni and cheese, and so many other culinary treats. They were all born of the U.S. South's melding of cultural traditions and practices. And in places such as the low country of South Carolina, a major part of scholar chef Kevin Mitchell's culinary practice, the connections between Africa, indigenous North America, Europe, and the South are best found and enjoyed. The South, it can be plainly said, is more than its politics. Indeed, the culture of the region has influenced not only how Southerners see themselves, but how the world sees the South. As this episode will showcase, the world is only scratching the surface of Southern culture. Our first guest today is Stuart Gray, the director of the Historic Landmarks Commission for Mecklenburg County, based in Charlotte, North Carolina whose mission is to protect and promote 
buildings, landscapes, and sites important to the diverse heritage of North Carolina. Stewart is a native of North Carolina and has worked with the Historic Landmarks Commission for Mecklenburg County since 2006. Our New South welcomes Stuart Gray. Stuart Gray, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for doing this. Well, thank you very much for having me. Absolutely. I'm Kevin Blackstone. I'm coming to you from College Park, Maryland, in my office at the University of Maryland. Um, and Robert is coming to you from South Carolina. And where are you? Uh, where are you at right now? You are actually in the city of Charlotte or the suburb? So I work for Mecklenburg County. The Charlotte Mecklenburg Historic Landmarks Commission uh, serves all the municipalities in Mecklenburg County. It's a you know, pretty big county now, over a million people. Charlotte is the, you know, the main entity for Mecklenburg County. But there are addition, I believe, and I should know, six additional towns. Davidson College, or Davidson is one of them. That's where I'm sitting now, and that's famous for Davidson College, Steph Curry. And uh, <laughs> uh, really, I mean, he put us on the map. You know, for years, uh, you would go outside of North Carolina and just say, I'm from Davidson. Unless you're from the South, you've never heard of Davidson College. But now everybody in the Bay Area knows where Davidson College is. Lefty Drizel. Well, yeah, if you're a basketball fan, especially if you're an ACC fan, you might have known about it. But again, Sure. Played an important role in the integration of the uh, of the ACC. Oh, yeah. Lefty. The, and that's a story that people around here don't know. The story of Lefty at Davidson College. You need to tell that story. That's some that's some historical preservation information right there. Mm-hmm. So where are you? Um, where are you originally from? I am from North Mech. So I grew up in, in Mecklenburg County, grew up out in the country in an unincorporated part of the county. Uh, there's very little, I mean, this is, Mecklenburg County is one of the fastest growing places in America. Charlotte, mm. as you may know, has really just exploded as a as an economic and job center over the last 20 years. And um, so I've seen a lot of change here. I moved away and um, never thought I'd move back. But as you grow older, you realize what a nice place you came from and we moved back here in the late 90s, and I've been working with the Landmarks Commission since uh, the early 2000s. Well, I was interested to find out in your resume that you have a master's in exactly what you are doing, and I did not realize that one could get uh, a, a degree in historic preservation. What was your attraction to that discipline? Well, I... When I was in California, I was working as an IT person after college, and I did not really enjoy it. I'd always enjoyed working with my hands, and um, yeah, I got into woodworking, had a workshop down in the basement, and this job posting opened up for this place called Sebastopol Window Company. And a lot of what they did was rehabbed and built replacement windows for all of the Victorian uh, Queen Anne style houses in San Francisco. And if you're familiar with the area, there are a lot of them. And I went in there and just started repairing and making windows and really just kind of, ha- I was having a great time. Moved back to North Carolina, again, hands-on. We had some property out in what was then the rural part of the county. I built my own house, 
And my wife, you know, had the nine to five job and my job was to build a home for us. I built the house and then started doing construction work at a partner who was a general contractor. And I found myself attracted to the historic properties. I mean, I just, I looked for them in Mecklenburg County. We've got a few historic sites such as Rosedale, such as the Torrance House and Store. Uh, I got in with the Landmarks Commission. First thing I did for them was to repair some windows on a historic property. And so I was, already, I was really falling in love with historic buildings. And then the University of North Carolina at Greensboro announced that they had a master's degree program with a concentration in historic preservation. So I, that was the transition. It was from, from construction and then preservation, hands-on, to going to graduate school. I went to graduate school there, had a wonderful time and learned so much and kind of that cemented uh, my calling. And it seems like you've gone beyond just um, repairing windows on historic homes. It seems like historic preservation for you and what you do in your new position is much broader than that. What does it all entail? Well, the Landmarks Commission is a governmental entity. It is a commission, kind of like a soil and water commission or a a design review board that you might have in other cities. In North Carolina, local governments can establish a preservation commission. And in Charlotte, that was done back in 1973, and it is the Charlotte Mecklenburg Historic Landmarks Commission. And they've got powers. Hmm. They can, you can't have a designated landmark or a designated historic district in North Carolina unless you've got a preservation commission that has studied it and makes a recommendation to the elected officials. And then the elected officials can say, we're going to make Fourth Ward in Charlotte a local historic uh, district. We deal, in my office, deal with individual properties. So if we have the Robert Greene Memorial Historic Farmhouse uh, there on the outside of Charlotte, we can say this, you know, Robert Greene Farmhouse is so important for this aspect of history, we bring it to the city of Charlotte, and then they would designate it as a landmark. Once it's designated as a landmark, so we're working with the elected officials on that, once designated as a landmark, the state law says that the Preservation Commission has design review control, meaning you can't make a change to the Robert Green Farmhouse without getting the Landmarks Commission to review and approve. And sorry, Robert, don't mean to pick on you, but the name was there. You cannot make a change to the Robert Green farmhouse without the Landmarks Commission approving. You can't get that building permit. Well, first off, I want to thank you for preserving my farmhouse. Uh, but secondly, <laughs> and a more important point, as a historian myself, I really do appreciate the work that you and many others do in historic preservation, because in many ways, what folks think of and see as history often first means seeing historic sites in their hometowns or in cities they're visiting. So in, in that regard, talking about your work with the commission, could you talk about some of the victories that your commission has won in terms of preserving key historic landmarks in the Mecklenburg area? A lot of people in preservation, and I'll, I'll try to get Robert back to what we're proud of, but I, I did want to say a lot of folks in preservation, especially in the old days, were trying to elevate the historic properties. You want to designate the best and the finest. And I think the Landmarks Commission, one of, uh, one of our early designations, 
was, and I think this was groundbreaking from the 1970s, to be honest, uh, looking at what's been designated across the state, was uh, buildings associated with John C. C. Smith University in Charlotte, which is HBCU, you know. And one of those that we lost was the um, Gar Memorial Tabernacle. And I hope I've got that name right. And it had a big Jesus Save sign, I think in neon, on the top of it. And you can see it from the mm-hmm. highway. And it was this massive, um, massive auditorium, really, is what it was. So I don't, you know, I don't want to go on and on about But that's really, if I was talking about what I'm proud of in Charlotte, is I'm proud of two uh, African-American historic districts that were recently uh, designated by Charlotte City Council. Um, Corey Heights and Oakland Park. Um, both those were facing a lot of gentrification and this historic overlay, the, the designation of those neighborhoods, I guarantee it, it will mitigate uh, some of the damage for gentrification. And you just mentioned that in your answer. I just want to piggyback off of that for a second. Uh, talking specifically about block enclaves in, in Charlotte, like Macquarie Heights and the like, could you talk a bit more about what you're seeing on the ground in terms of how those black communities are responding to gentrification? I think there's a lot of awareness. I mean, it's, it's you know, and I think folks are organizing and calling us about what we can do to help. Again, I think I gave my spiel, my passionate spiel about the big fix for that. But I do think that we're seeing a lot of local businessmen and local community leaders, you know, fighting back against it and pushing for, um, well, we've got an example of, um, of the McDonald's cafeteria in, along Beatty's Ford Road, which is in the University Park area. And it's a, it's a 1960s, very cool mid-century modern strip mall that was developed by an African-American businessman back in the, back in the 60s. And Christopher Dennis, who's the, the local businessman who found that project, and I, I can't speak for Dennis, but it really seems like a, a labor of love, and got support from the city, got support from the neighborhood. They all just came together. And I guess what I would say, Robert, would be it, it's action. So what is your definition of the New South today, and how does your work fit into that definition? The Charlotte's a new South City, you know, and that's, you know, a big, that's why we're here. That's why Charlotte's here. That's why Charlotte has a good, uh, Charlotte Mecklenburg County have a good preservation staff because the city has benefited from the new South movement, was a leader in the new South, uh, of this industrialization, the modernization, if you want to say, of the South in the 20th century. And we're dealing with the legacy of that. And we're also dealing with the legacy of that happening. It essentially was, you know, driven by white industrialists and the rest of the community was, was brought along in, in whatever way. Women, African Americans and, you know, the indigenous people. That's the story that we are telling because the built environment reflects that major change to this landscape. I want to ask about your work with the commission, especially in light of recent debates about Confederate memorials, Confederate statues and such. 
and how you're seeing Southerners grapple with their history via the physical landscape. Yeah, it's hard. It's complex. I mean, I think the common acceptance and that, uh, for example, the Confederate monuments are, well, first off, they're, they're one of the most difficult tasks for historic preservation because, you know, preservation is about keeping what's there. How do we deal with that when something is patently offensive? And uh, we've come down to the point where, you know, it's just, I got to say, it's hard for preservationists to say we're going to remove this uh, historic element of the landscape, but they need to be removed. I'm just, I'm speaking broadly in general. But yeah, it's been real interesting to see the evolution of that really just in the last 20 years since I've been working of us. And I got to say, as a white guy, you know, to try to, it takes a little bit of time to understand, you know, because I was really, my philosophy originally is keep it all, you know, keep everything. We want to tell the story. Let's make this a learning experience. And, you know, getting through the thick head that, you know, it's not all academic. We've got to think about trauma. We've got to think about the effect. We've got to think about moving forward. Well, thank you. I think you've exhausted all of my questions. I don't know, Robert, do you have any? I'm exhausted. No, no this, I... is a good, this is good exhaustion. <laughs> this has this been great. Fantastic. Thank you so much. This is really informative. Our next guest is Robin Waits, the soon-to-be retiring executive director of Historic Columbia, a preservation advocacy group based in Columbia, South Carolina, whose mission is to nurture, support, and protect the historical and cultural heritage of Columbia through programs of advocacy, education, and preservation. Robin is a nearly lifelong resident of Columbia and comes from a family with a long history fighting for social justice for all in South Carolina. Our New South welcomes Robin Waits. All right, everyone, welcome back to Our New South. Uh, right now, we are privileged and fortunate to be able to interview Robin Waits, the Executive Director of Historic Columbia. And we want you all to get to know Robin Waits pretty well. I've come to know her living here in Columbia over the last decade or so. And first for our audience, Robin, could you tell us a bit about yourself, what you do, and also a bit about your personal background? Yeah, sure. Um, I, I Again, thank you all for, for having me on the show. Um, I'm Robin Waits. I'm the executive director with Historic Columbia. Um, we are a, an organization that manages six historic sites in the in the city center. But much more than that, we, we also um, interpret the, the history of Columbia and Richland County um, beyond the, the sites that we manage. Uh, in addition, we serve as the primary advocates for preservation of our built history in, in Columbia and Richland County. Um, I am a Columbia native. Uh, I left I left here um, after I graduated from high school to go to college up north in, um, in Vermont, went to Middlebury College and said I was never coming back to South Carolina. Um, for various reasons that we may unpack a little bit today, but came back actually pretty quickly. I have a lot of family here. Um, my sister started having kids, and as soon as somebody called me rah-rah, um, it was all over for me. So I have been back in, <laughs> in South Carolina. I went to graduate school at the University of South Carolina, um, started work from there at the South Carolina State Museum, where I was the art curator, and then uh, came to Historic Columbia in um, 2002, 
And really, because I was I was interested in kind of moving beyond the sort of white walls of a curatorial position and, and beyond the, the art community uh, to doing work within within community that, that really mattered um, in different ways. Right. Um, and so I have have built my career um, at, at Historic Columbia over the past 22 years. Excellent. And as I understand that your, your family has a social justice background as well. Could you talk a bit about that, too, please? Uh, sure. So, um, my on my mom's side of, of the family, my my grandparents uh, moved to Columbia in the 1940s from New York. Uh, my grandfather was an artist, and he he interestingly depicted kind of all sorts of of communities in Colombia that many of which have been removed from the landscape today. Uh, my grandfather kind of documented some of those communities. Um, my grandmother was very involved with the League of Women Voters, and actually the first integrated meeting of the League of w- Women Voters took place at, at my grandmom's house. And she was always very outspoken for voting rights for um, for, for everyone, right? Um and, and my mom kind of took on that, that mantle at, at a young age, got involved with the league as well, um, ultimately ran for public office. She served on Richland County Council for a number of years and then moved into um, a, a seat in the House of Representatives for, for a couple of terms. And, um, you know, my, my mom was somebody is and continues today to be somebody who didn't necessarily follow along party lines, always kind of moved in ways that she felt was in the best best interest of her constituents and, and the residents of, of Richland County and the state of South Carolina. Worked um, on um, issues that were related to ethics in, um, in the state house, issues that were related to access to health care for all communities. Um, she, she worked on issues that were um, working towards kind of equal rights in the LGBTQ community. I have been astounded by how much I've learned from Historic Columbia over this last decade or so. So please talk a bit about some of those newer stories you're bringing to the surface. Yeah, you know, I, I think, um, you know, Robert, I, I would say it started with a with a grant funded project that we did with the Institute for Museum and Library Services that that we called Connecting Communities Through History. And that was a, an opportunity for us to kind of move beyond the the house museums and the stories that we were telling um, on site into into historic neighborhoods. And that really, for me, kind of shifted my perspective of of what a museum can do, because we went into neighborhoods and instead of going into these spaces and telling people what their story was, and we were going into these neighborhoods and asking them to share their stories with us. Uh, share their photographs, share their impressions. And so we became a platform for other people to tell their stories as opposed to an organization that that dictated what the stories were, right? And so so that I think for Historic Columbia and for me, you know, opened me up to a much broader narrative for this community. And, and with that, we were able to put together walking tours and print materials and web-based materials that folks could access, again, a, a much broader narrative about Columbia. And so I think that enabled us to have a broader base of support, and whether that's from our municipal government or for our neighborhoods, um, it, it diversified our levels of support. We were going into Black communities and we were going into white communities of all different socioeconomic status. Uh, we expanded that project from the first grant to six 
Uh, we now have 23 that are um, that are either geographically based or thematically based. And so that really opened a door to an entirely new audience for us. We're talking about historic preservation and a name that I'm sure you know is just in the news uh, here in Washington, D.C., where I'm at, and it's Bree Newsom. And so it just reminds me to ask you about historic preservation, because the other part of it is in South Carolina is the removal of some historic objects, the Confederate flag being maybe the most prominent, which Bree Newsom snatched down from the flagpole, and then monuments as well to Confederate uh, figures. So how have you balanced that? What's your approach to the preservation of that history with what you're trying to expose? Yeah, so we um, in South Carolina have have this roadblock called the Heritage Act. And this was a compromise that was made when the flag, the Confederate flag came off of the dome of the state house. So it was there before it was moved into the front of the Confederate monument. It was part of also establishing an African-American monument on the state house grounds, that these were all sort of negotiations that were made. If we are going to take the flag down and create this monument for, for African-Americans, then the, the give to that is that no monuments can be removed from public property, particularly or specifically for individuals who are associated with, with military action. That's what the Heritage Act says, which is a little bit of a, a, a crease that we've tried to kind of break into uh, un, unsuccessfully, unfortunately. And that any, the, any monument that has to be a two-thirds majority, um, so it's not a simple majority in order to remove a monument from, from state property. And so our elected leadership has set this up to make it virtually impossible because of the makeup of our, of our body. Um, to remove monuments from state property. Could you talk a bit more to our audience about the political and cultural importance of the State House grounds in Columbia, South Carolina? Uh, I often have found myself there more often than not for protest. Uh, I think I've only been there once or twice just to walk around the State House grounds. But <laughs> tell our audience a bit about why, why the State House grounds are so important, culturally and politically speaking, in Columbia. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that you you have said it, um, Robert. I mean, it's at the center of the state and the center of the city. It is at the kind of union of of commerce and and government. So our main street abuts um, the state house grounds. Um, it is the place where people go to certainly cast their votes, but also to to um, to raise the issues that are that are important to to them. In one of the projects that we have that we have worked on over the last five years is a documentation of the LGBTQ community, and the the sort of the the pivot point for that movement was the march um, in 1990 from uh, Richland Street, Richland and Marion, up to the to the State House grounds, and the original idea was that they would just congregate on the 
um, kind of on the front lawn there. And what ended up happening is it was the the number of humans they thought there might be a couple of hundred people and there were a couple of thousand people. And they they just decided to to march up the state house steps as if to, you know, say this is our place too, right? We we belong here as well. And and this kind of reclamation of space by different groups, I think, is a really important gathering point for um for what our state house should be um and, and should represent. And very quickly, I want to follow up on that that question of of LGBTQ history in Colombia, because that's a, a much more recent initiative. Could you talk about the importance of that to both historic Columbia and the community writ large? Because I, I think most folks assume with historic preservation in the South, it comes down primarily to issues of race. But what you're looking at here are also issues of sexual identity, too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so, so this was, again, kind of based in that connecting communities through history model where we went into community and then invited people to share their stories with us. So we uh, we documented about 30 oral oral histories from individuals who are in community of, of all age and, and race and socioeconomic, again, um, backgrounds who are all part of the queer community. Um, it was such an interesting um, uh, project to, you know, talk, to talk about, to talk with young trans individuals, um, kind of alongside old, old queer men who used to go to the Capital City Club, right, or still do. Um, but, but also looking at not just as a story, but as a place-based interpretation. So we identified over 300 sites in Columbia that have some connection to the queer community. And that creating kind of or not creating, but uplifting narratives that enable people to feel connected to the place that they that they live or that they work or to stories of the past that resonate with them. We could spend all day talking about each and every site that Historic Columbia handles. And I've been privileged to see this, some of this in action over the last decade. But could you talk a bit about, and I know as it's like being a proud parent, you're proud of every preservation project you've been a part of, but could you talk about a couple in particular that sent out to you that you've seen in your tenure at Historic Columbia? Sure. I mean, I, I think the I think the Majeska Simpkins is probably a, a site that gets, doesn't, doesn't get raised up enough and and we've done really really good work there we we opened that site as a as a museum in 2020 we we've been stewarding it since 2006 and, and Majeska Simpkins is kind of the preeminent she's been called the matriarch of civil rights in in South Carolina um the house that she that she lived in for most of her life was the site for conversations with Thurgood Marshall on on all the important um kind of civil rights legislation that, that happened in, in South Carolina. I mean, she was a fearless um, proponent for, for equal rights. Um, you know, I think from a preservation perspective, at a very basic level, we've done a ton of work on Main Street in, in Columbia. We wrote the National Register nomination that enabled the preservation of some of the key Reconstruction era sites on Main Street that are now restaurants and um, and bowling alleys and movie theaters and has really turned kind of the tide of engagement in a, in a city center again. And, and I love that we can use our history not only for kind of cultural renaissance, but for for economic impact um, in Columbia. So those are two. This was fantastic, Robin. Thank you so much. I, I hope that our listeners will have a greater understanding of what historic preservation looks like in the Deep South. This is fantastic. 
Yeah, and congratulations on all the work and progress that you've made over uh, over a generation. Definitely. Absolutely. So, Robert, you know what I find interesting about Robin Waits's comment is that she puts a new spin, at least for me, on the idea of revisionist history, which we generally think of in the negative, but she's speaking about it in the positive. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And I was glad that she did so. I, I think most folks outside the historical profession, when they hear the phrase revisionist history, they fear that history is being destroyed, that it's being torn down. But in fact, what revisionist history is, is trying to get as close to the truth as we can. And I think what Robin Waits was getting at is for a lot of South Carolinians, a lot of Southerners, we haven't come to terms with the Reconstruction period. We haven't come to terms with some of the oppressions that we are at least vaguely aware of. But if we can keep revising that history, making, as one of my mentors in college said, making the truth truer, then mm. perhaps we can see some real difference in the here and now. Our third guest on this episode today is chef scholar Kevin Mitchell. He is a chef, an educator, and an author who is considered to be one of South Carolina's most notable chefs. Kevin has earned a reputation as a scholar in Southern cooking, is a former South Carolina chef ambassador, and has co-written a book about South Carolina cuisine called Taste the State, South Carolina's signature foods, recipes, and their stories with historian David Shields. Kevin grew up in New Jersey, but has called South Carolina home since 2008. Our New South welcomes chef scholar Kevin Mitchell. Thank you very much for doing this, Mr. Mitchell. And I'm Kevin Blackstone. I'm coming to you from just outside of Washington, D.C., Silver Spring, Maryland, my office here at the University of Maryland. And I always like to have our guests introduce themselves to our, our listeners. So please let everyone know uh, where you're from, um, where you're at, and what you do. Well, good afternoon. This is uh, Chef Kevin Mitchell. I am from originally from New Jersey. Um, so I am a Yankee, a northerner. But as of now, I am in the beautiful city state of Charleston, South Carolina, where I am a chef instructor at the Culinary Institute of Charleston, located within the Trident Technical College. And I have to ask, of course, how does one born in New Jersey wind up dropping anchor in Charleston, South Carolina? What What's that journey? Wow. Well, yeah, growing up in New Jersey and, of course, uh, going to culinary school in New York, most people know being a chef takes you through many different places throughout your life. And prior to coming to South Carolina, I was a chef at the uh, MGM Grand Hotel and Casino in Detroit, Michigan. And a good friend of mine gave me a call and said, hey, what do you think about Charleston, South Carolina? I said, well, you know, I've, I've heard some interesting things about Charleston. You know, I know some of the the history <laughs> of Charleston. And um, at that particular time, the, the food scene was really starting to really kind of take place. And this was a back in like 2007, 2008. And um, so I was like, well, why? What's, what's the question? He says, well, there's a culinary school there in Charleston, and they're looking specifically for a black chef to join as a faculty member. They didn't have one out of, you know, the program itself at that point was about a thousand students in culinary 
baking, pastry, and in hospitality. Um, the enrollment for people of color, specifically African-Americans, was well above 30%. So, of course, they needed someone there to be an inspiration to look like the other students. And um, they brought me down on a tour. Um, I toured both campuses. I toured the surrounding area of Charleston, you know, Mount Pleasant, Goose Creek, Kiowa, those places like that. And the, the, the main thing that really got me was the fact that there was no black chefs there. And I'm l- walking through classrooms and seeing if there's 16 students in the class, a good five or six of them are African-American. And there are two, two pivotal moments that really shaped the decision for me to come to Charleston. One was a student, an African-American student who, um, as I was kind of walking through, approached me and said, hey, he was like, hey, are you, you trying to get a job here? And I was like, well, yeah, you know, I'm testing it out, seeing what's, you know, seeing what's going on. And he just looked up at me and said, I don't care what you do. You have to come here. You have to come here. We need someone like you um, here in this program. And that really struck me first. And then while I was here, I went on a field trip with a a class that we call Farm to Plate. And Mm -hmm. they take students out to local farms and, you know, they go to places where hogs are processed and things like that. And one of these trips was to a rice plantation. And when the dean originally asked me to join that trip, he sent me an email. And it's really funny because all I saw was the word plantation. And I'm like, well, I'm not, I don't, <clears throat> you know, that word doesn't do really well for us. However, of course, after further reading it, um, it was a rice plantation. And if anyone knows, you know, rice is what makes Charleston what it is and what it was at that particular point. And I went on this field trip and I remember walking away from the group and I was in the middle of this plantation and it was like a movie scene. You know know where they have that moment where the eerie music starts playing in the background. All this, all these things were kind of swirling in my head. And at that moment, I remember saying to myself, you know, my ancestors could have been here. They could have been processing rice here as an enslaved person. So I felt like I needed to to make that decision to to come to Charleston. And of course, I talked to some family members. I talked to other chefs that I knew back in Detroit. And the answer was the same. You need to go there this is your calling. And I made this decision to come and that was back in December of 2008. And I've been there ever since. It's Chef Kevin again. Thank you so much for joining us today. My name is uh, Robert Green II. I'm actually coming to you from Columbia, South Carolina. So I'm about two hours away from you right now. Yes, sir. Um, and I-, I am especially curious about how you would define Southern cuisine as it is in 2023. I think a lot of our listeners have certain perceptions of what they define as Southern cuisine, what qualifies Southern cuisine. So could you talk a bit about how you would define Southern cuisine? Before you mention anything about Southern cuisine, you have to understand the influences. um, And that is the people. So we know 
Native American. We know some European and, of course, predominantly the African. Right. And I think a lot of it is is based on those influences, based on the people. And then for me, the most important would be the ingredients. Right. We talk about rice. We talk we can talk about okra. We can talk about different types of peas, uh, whether it's black eyed peas, Sea Island red peas. We have to talk about grits. We have to talk about bene or bene seeds, which are true sesame seeds that come to us from Africa. Very important in in Southern food in the 17, 18, in the late 1800s, mainly because of what you get from bene seeds. Um, you can get, you first, first foremost, you can parse them or pulse them for oil, right? And oil, bene seed oil was the major cooking medium in this area during that particular time period until the onset of lesser or cheaper produced oils, right? So always has to go back to the people, the influences, and of course, the ingredients. And, you know, there's always this big debate about Southern food, soul food. And, you know, I've heard some chefs say that they're one in the same. However, Southern food may be for, for white people and soul food is made for for black people, even though it's the same food, right? You know, it's, it's once again, you got to think about those people. You got to think about the ingredients and just the fact that the, the enslaved people, you know, they took, you know, and we just talked about like top of the line ingredients. We haven't even talked about, you know, chitlins and hog maws and pig feet and all those things, you know, things that the African took and created something beautiful with those particular items to to make it soul food or Southern food. That's really an important question that, that Robert asked and a great answer that you gave. Can, and I just want to bore down on it a little bit more because um, your thesis, your thesis was titled From Black Hands to White Mouths, Charleston's Freed and Slave Cooks and Their Influence on the Food of the South. Can you give a an oral abstract of why that thesis and, and what it revealed? Well, the, the thesis, first, it talks about the people, right? There, there's a chapter that specifically talks about these chefs, either enslaved, formerly enslaved, or freed people who create what we know of today as Southern food, right? So it was very important that I give or pay homage to those people. Um, then we also bring in they what they did with the ingredients. So there's a there's a chapter that talks about those specific ingredients. So going back to rice, okra, bene seeds, watermelon, things that we hold very near and dearer to us in in southern food or soul food or gulagichi food, whichever one you want to call it. That thesis was a way for me to pay homage to the people, pay homage to the ingredients. And also, you know, there's one specific person in there that I have a deep relationship with, right? And that would have been or that would be um, Nat Fuller. And Nat Fuller um, was a formerly enslaved person who was owned by 
William C. Gatewood, who was actually from the North and moved to South Carolina and earned his money on the railway system. So he wasn't a traditional Southern or Charleston planner, um, but he was someone that entertained, right? And he, he purchases Nat at the age of 15 and he sends him to apprentice under Eliza Seymour Lee, who at the time was, she was the matriarch of these black caterers in the city. And Nat goes on to become one of the greatest black caterers in the city of Charleston in the late 1800s. And, you know, most people know the story that he, that he held this dinner. I would, we would say two weeks or so after the end of the civil war, where he brought together blacks and whites in the same room to break bread at the same time in the spirit of equality. Also in the spirit of reconciliation, he's one of my biggest heroes because just if you think about what this man went through and then what he did at the end of the civil war, right? When we know most of us, when, when we were freed, so to speak, we were getting, we were getting the hell up out of Charleston. We were going to the North. We were trying to get away from that, that life. And this man brought these people together and hosted this dinner. And, you know, fortunately for me, I was able to recreate this dinner in 2015 and stand in, in his shoes as Nat Fuller. And at that particular point, that was probably the biggest dinner of my career. It was a very pivotal moment in the city of Charleston because you're right. It happened, you know, right after the Walter Scott, you know, and also if you look a little bit further, the Emmanuel nine happens not too long after that. Right. So this dinner is wedged in the middle of two polarizing events that are based around race um, and racial inequality in, in the, in the city Specifically, we're, we're talking specifically Charleston, but throughout the country as well. I, I want to ask a follow up about something you mentioned earlier, which was that you said you stood on, on important shoulders. I, I think it's safe to say if you're a black person in any profession in America, whether it's being a chef, a journalist or a historian, as three of us are for this conversation, we all know the shoulders that we stand on. And so, Chef Kevin, could you talk a bit about some of those historically important black chefs? You mentioned, of course, Nat Fuller, but talk a bit about how those black chefs have been so integral to not just Southern, but American cuisine writ large. Of course, we start with Nat Fuller and Thomas Tully and Eliza Seymour Lee, all these people around during, of course, the antebellum period who were either freed or enslaved, right? And then we move into, you know, my own personal giants, you know, whether it's, it's Edna Lewis, Talia Chase, it's Chef Joe Randall in Savannah. It's Patrick Clark, right? It's Daryl Evans, the first black chef to compete on the in the Culinary Olympics. So, and and why do you teach? Um, and when you do teach, are you teaching food and preparation more, or are you teaching this historical appreciation more? I do a little bit of both. What I try to do is I try to impart some historical aspect into any class that I teach. Now, some classes are not necessarily built for that. Um, you know, where if I'm doing a class where it's just basic, like knife skills, you know, these, these students are, it's the first time that they ever have a knife in their hand or it's the first time they've ever been in a kitchen. 
you know, I keep it to those techniques. But if there is a way for me to impart and bring in that historical, I'm doing it no matter what class it is. You know, you know, there are points where we talk about rice in that class. So I make it an opportunity to not only talk about rice from Asia, but hey, we got to talk about rice from Africa if we're going to talk about rice. And specifically because we are in Charleston, uh, it's important for me to bring those elements into the classroom. So we got to do a little lightning round here. <laughs> Cornbread, sugar or no? <laughs> I'll tell you, I grew up on sweet cornbread. <laughs> it's got to be sweet. Okay. Got to be sweet. Um, boiled peanuts, yay or nay? I'm sorry to all my friends here in South Carolina, but I probably had to say nay. And I tell you, <laughs> I think it's a texture thing with the boiled peanuts to me. So I would definitely have to say nay right. on the boiled peanuts. And I'd also have to ask grits, sugar or nah? No sugar. Mm-mm. Butter, salt, pepper, and then cheese. That's it. And uh, the other thing I'd ask, what what to you is the most quintessential Southern dish? Well, here I would do shrimp and grits. I mean, and probably even in Columbia, you go to six different restaurants and find six different variations on shrimp and grits. But it is a quintessential dish. It is truly it is truly South Carolina. I mean, it actually is a dish that started off um, not with grits, but it started off with rice, shrimp with a little bit of gravy over rice, and then it evolved into people using grits. Great. Thank you so much, Chef Kevin Mitchell. Again, an adopted son of South Carolina who's given us some wonderful insights today on, on Southern and South Carolina cuisine and most importantly gave us the correct opinion on grits. So again, <laughs> thank you so much, uh, Chef Kevin Mitchell. This was phenomenal. Our fourth and final guest on today's episode is Harvey Cummings, a musical prodigy and award-winning jazz musician known for fusing jazz with hip-hop, R&B, and other forms of music native to North Carolina like bluegrass and Appalachian music. Harvey is a lifelong resident of North Carolina and is considered one of Charlotte's greatest musical talents. Our New South welcomes Harvey Cummings. All right, Harvey Cummings, thank you so much for uh, uh, for doing this. We are looking forward to it. And I, I know that we all love music. I absolutely uh, uh, love music. I go to the Newport Jazz Festival almost every summer. I got a lot of friends who are who are musicians. So this is this is really cool. One of the things we ask people to do when they come on the show is to please introduce yourself, where you're from, where you're at, and what it is you do. Okay. What's going on, everybody? My name is Harvey Earl Cummings II. Um, that's who I am. What do I do? I am a multifaceted, multi-hyphenated musician, uh, producer, composer, arranger, everything that has to do with music, man, like how it functions, a theorist, a lecturer, just a human being. I guess where I am or where I'm at, I'm right here. I went to North Carolina Central University. Okay, North Carolina Central. And got got two degrees with the jazz studies program. So I got a degree in, in music, you know, learn how that functions, and then got a whole separate degree in jazz studies, man, under the 
great direction of Dr. Ira Wiggins and Brantford Marsalis, man. So, oh, that's huge. My early twenties, you know, yeah. Well, I know, I know Brantford from back in the day because his uh, his wife used to work for the NBA, um, and uh, got to know him a little bit there, and his brother uh, Winton as well. Brantford's def- definitely a mentor, man. Definitely, he helped shake my sound. He got me straight. So, so how is it then that someone like Brantford, um, who is from the South, who's made his bones in the North and everywhere, and you coming up in, in, in North Carolina, home of John Coltrane, yet you are still in the South uh, creating your craft, honing your craft. What is it about the South that for you has, has kept your music grounded there? I mean, the South is where I'm from. The South is, is, is the soul, man. It's the soul of the South. North Carolina is a is a very soulful state, man. Roberta Flat. <laughs> you know, we're, we're very soulful state, man. Monk, train, like like all of these different different just geniuses, man. It's just it's a it's a certain lineage that we have, man. You know, even to this day with you know, New Cats, Ninth Wonder, and Sianka, and whoever's out, man. Like, like, there's always people who are pushing that, that you know, and, and like waving that North Carolina banner, you know, that, that that Southern banner, even if they're even not from the South. So, and I'll introduce you to another second. <laughs> I, I have to echo your introduction by by doing mine the same way. I am Robert Jerome Green the second. Uh, originally from Augusta, Georgia, but coming to you from Columbia, South Carolina. And I am so excited to have you on the show today uh, because, like Kevin, I'm also a big jazz uh, fan and aficionado. Um, in fact, I would often play jazz for my students. I'm actually a college professor at Clapton University in Orangeburg, South Carolina. And exactly. Yes. And, and I, I, will, I will play the music for my students and a few will say, oh, this is great. This is fantastic. Um, and that brings me to my question for you, which is, we've already established you went to NC Central, um, which is which is a, a very well-known HBCU in, in the South and across the country. Could you talk a bit more about how attending Central specifically had an impact on your career as a musician? We've talked a bit about the folks you, you, you learned under that while there, but talk a bit more about the culture of Central and how that impacted you as well. I mean, Central is, it's multifaceted. You know, Central is the home of the Sloping Hills and Verdant Greens. Um, my my parents are both, my mom and dad are both alumnus of, of, of North Carolina Central. My aunts, my my uncles, I had no, I can say no intention of really, because I was trying to really get out and do it. And then I just learned its history, man. Like I said, Central is a, is a, is a, is a is historically a small liberal arts college, man. But Central's music program has this is the house that Donald Byrd built, man. You know, he created this this program in the in the late seventies, man. Let me let me ask you, because when we think of the South and we think of music in the South, if we you know, we think of the birth of jazz obviously in New Orleans. And then if we think of the South, we also think of of country music. But Charlotte is from your explanation and the names that you just dropped, highly underrated um in terms of fomenting music yeah man because i mean you got to think north carolina as broad when you think of north carolina the sound like i said on, on, on all you know are in the soulful end but then you got like 
this 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 Celtic Highland music, like bluegrass, the 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 the, the folk man, J- uh, James Taylor, mm. uh, Lunas McGlohan, you know people like that, like the McGlohan Theater at Spirit Square was named after Lewis McGlohan, man. Famous, you know, composer was based out of Charlotte, man. But it's this that it was that you see through that sound of Appalachia. You have the jazz. You got the, the the gospel. You know the churches between North and South Carolina. The R and B. You know every every region has this has this thing. One of the things that that we noticed about um, in your bio was that you have a relationship with the reason that we're doing this podcast, and that's the Levine Museum of the New South. What's your relationship with them and with it, and how did it play a role in your development? I mean, it started, I moved back to Charlotte in, after grad school, late 2007. And I think a year or two later, uh, you know, we were doing events, you know, for, for the, not the Gantt Museum, but the old African-American Cultural Center. And I think they just just finished the actual brick and mortar, the physical building of Levine, man. And um, started off workshops, started off just doing all sorts of events from from weddings to fundraisers to galas. Um, and then I started to actually meet the people and work with them. Um, uh, we were involved with the a West Side Technology Afrofuturism Project with Janelle Dunlap, you know. And and that was to me was okay. This is this is Levine trying to tr- trying to step into this lane. This is good. I mean, it is the museum of the New South. People gotta understand what New South is, man. It's South, but it's 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 a whole new re- re- redevelopment plan, man. And 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 like how we have maintained since then, man. So, and since you mentioned it, what is the New South to you? The new South is everything. The new South is 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 knowing because it can't be new without acknowledging the old. You know, we we know where we come from. We know the history. We know of of of, of struggles past and 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 and, and, glo- and glory days past. You know, but it's just it's taking all of that and fueling it and to become, you know, a better region to educate, to know, to be a resource, knowing what we got and you know, using that, if that makes sense. <laughs> now, with that in mind, I, I wanted to kind of go back for a second and talk about the, the Southern roots of your music. You mentioned a few minutes ago uh, how North Carolina has all these different musical stylings and musical genres that come together in the state. Um, and you've become well known for taking a lot of these influences and really displaying them in your music. And so could you talk a bit more about how some of those influences like bluegrass, soul, et cetera, how they, they play a role in your music? Oh, man. Um, bluegrass and jazz are distant cousins. I even say distant. They might be first cousins, man. Because you take, you take that acoustic bass. I mean, if it's jazz, is and the bass is going doom. And bluegrass, it's just boom, 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 boom. It's still got that same foundation. It's just the, it's just different instruments. You got the banjo, 
but do but do but do but do that but do but do but it's it's serving as like a a stride piano boom bop do bop do bop do bop do bop do you know it's 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 serving it's almost that and then you put the the gospel in the country they're cousins because it's the same chord progressions it's the same chords it's the same harmony you know it's precious lord and whatever Dolly Parton song it's the same song man it all comes from that. And so how did you get tied into the Charlotte area rappers who you work with? First artist I hooked up with to this day, one of my good friends, Elevator J, man, out of out of Beatty's Ford, out of LaSalle, man. This guy, his sound, his, 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 how he approaches it. He's featured on my project as well. You know, Elevator J, Loot with Dreamville, uh, Sianca, rapper Big Pooh. Just all these different people. It's like I, I'm a I'm a child I'm a child of hip hop. I mean, I, I love jazz. Jazz, but I'm a, I'm a child of hip hop. So, in other words, you're saying Charlotte has something to say as well as itself. So. <laughs> it's got something to say, man. It's very. Um, we have the talent. We have all that, but I do feel like it's still an underrated city, man. Man, thanks for doing this, man. It's great. Yeah, thank you so much. Robert, I know we've dealt with some really academic issues in this podcast thus far, um, but this was really fun. And I think it really at least led me to think differently about the South because we're thinking about Southern culture, right? I mean, that's the thing. That's the boat that really carries the South to the rest of the country and, in fact, to the rest of the world. You know, funny enough, as someone who grew up in the Southern cultures, it was great for me to be able to kind of take a step back and realize, wow, this is what I grew up with. This is what I was able to experience. And again, I got to say, you know, whether it's talking about memorialization or, or a bowl of stripping grits or <laughs> some good jazz music, I, I think the South still has a lot to offer to the rest of the world. I love the rhythm. I love the rhymes. Just not the boiled peanuts. Oh, Thank you for tuning in. Our New South is brought to you by the Levine Museum of the New South in Charlotte, North Carolina. Thanks to the generous support of the Knight Foundation. Our New South is produced by Next Chapter Podcast. Written and produced by Byron Hunter. The editor and sound designer is Kyle Murdoch. Executive producers are Jeremiah Tittle and Frankie Abbott. Our technical producer is Brian Douglas, with special thanks to Levine team members Alexander Pinedes, Karen Sutton, and Cliff Whitfield. Please follow the ship, subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. Learn more at ncpodcast.com forward slash Our New South. 
and museumofthenewsouth.org. Next chapter podcasts.